Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon by Tim Warrillow, the co-founder and CEO of Fevertree, which, as you know, are the mixer maker extraordinaire. The company was set up back in 2003 when Tim and his co-founder, Charles Rolls, realised there were all these lovely gins about the place but a pretty lacklustre selection of tonics to go in them. So Tim trooped off to the Democratic Republic of Congo to find the best ingredients in the world, and he just about lived to tell the tale. There were naysayers, of course, at the beginning, there always are, but the product has always spoken for itself, and nowadays Fevertree is the number one tonic in the UK in the face of some pretty serious competition. In this episode, recorded at Fevertree's Global HQ in a lovely old school in West London, Tim told us how an article in a discarded newspaper changed everything, what he thinks of the new hard seltzer trend, and why the phrase pivot should be banned from the earth. Enjoy. Tim, thanks so much for joining us here on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. I say joining us, but here, here with you in well, your global HQ. And our, and our new bar, your new Joe, bar. which I, I hope you appreciate. I can you know, appreciate. You're, you're just about the first outsider to be sitting in the new bar, well, which I we're incredibly like proud of. Yeah, it's beautiful, and I'm on my second drink, non-alcoholic, I should stress, having a ginger beer now. Yeah, well, we can't wait to, to finish recording, and then we can hit the bar <laughs> properly. Quite right. <laughs> but you're, you're the man, of course, in a way, who changed the way we do drink gin and tonics. I wonder what they were like before. If you and I were sitting in a pub around here in the 90s, maybe, I mean, I would have been nine years old, but you can actually, so like, you ordered it, what would you get in your glass? Well, you are right. I mean, the gin and tonic then was a very different proposition. Um, I mean, the gin, let's start with the gin. I mean, the, the category had uh, suffered from a bit of cost engineering. Right. Right? They'd actually taken the alcoholic strength down uh, from 40% proof, as it should be if you're going to yeah. distill a gin properly, but down to 37.5% because, frankly, they made a bit of a saving. And, right. and they thought that they could get away with it. So, you know, the gin had been a bit compromised and certainly the tonic had been compromised. Yeah. Artificial sweeteners had found their way in really across the whole category. And then of course, I mean, as your nine-year-old self, <laughs> uh, you might remember how it was served, but it was there in that rather small, warm, slim gin glass, as it was called, right. which only had room for a little preserved bit of lemon <laughs> and a couple of small melting ice cubes. Yeah. So, you know, frankly, the whole cocktail, you know, was a rather compromised affair. Uh, and, and sadly, you know, that was the state our famous invention in this country yeah. of gin and tonic had got into. Sad, sad days. Was it a bit of an old ladies' drink as well, or am I misremembering that? I it, well, the one thing it had done was fallen out of fashion. Yeah, uh, no question about it. Absolutely. So you saw an opportunity. How did you then get involved in in making these mixes yourself? Well, it, it wasn't just me uh, that saw the opportunity. I have to say, I uh, started the business with my business partner Charles, and and look, I mean, how how that came about was the fact that I suppose going back a little bit on, on my side, but I had started a business uh, whilst up at university, yeah. uh, a very small business, 
Um, but that really whet my appetite sure. uh, for a sort of entrepreneurial life. Uh, and whilst I was scribbling business plans after university, I was persuaded to go and get a proper job. And so I went into advertising for a couple of years. Oh, wow. But, but the, the itch remained and I was still drawing up plans at night and, you know, at weekends. So I stopped after a couple of years yeah. uh, to pursue a few of these ideas. And, and I then, uh, you know, had no money. Um, uh, so I had to try and you know, make ends meet. So I did a bit of consultancy for a guy I'd met who I thought had the most brilliant idea in the fact that he had managed to manage to register the old trademarks for the old East India Company. Oh, wow. This you know, enormous institution, yeah, yeah. a famous you know, global institution, but incredibly, uh, it, the, the trademarks were lying there dormant. So anyway, he registered a few, but what he hadn't thought of uh, was how to apply them. And and so I started looking at all sorts of sort of product opportunities uh, with them. And so I was looking at tea, I was looking at coffee, I was looking at spices, gemstone trading. Um, but the area that really got my interest uh, was that of, of drinks because the East India Company had invented IPA, India Pale Ale. Yeah. Uh, they invented Indian tonic water, wow. uh, and they'd also been the first people to export gin. Um, so that's where I really started to to sort of look hard. And unfortunately, this guy uh, ran out of money, or certainly claimed he did. So he stopped paying me any consultancy fees. Um, but but by then, I'd really started to sort of set my heart uh, on on this whole area of premium drinks, and very particularly gin. I was looking very hard at gin. Um, and in my conversations with people in the trade, uh, a, a few people mentioned to me uh, of uh, Charles Rolls. Uh, now, Charles, is, who's a few years older, um, he had uh, already been very successful with resurrecting this wonderful old brand of gin called mm. Plymouth Gin, uh, yeah. which you know had been rather forgotten. It was owned by one of the big drinks companies and was sitting forgotten in in, a, in the bottom of their sort of portfolio of drinks. And Charles had very enterprisingly taken it and breathed life back into it and put it back onto the market uh, and created a real uh, name for it and himself in the process. And, and then it was come and bought by one of the spirit companies. So when I saw a few people, they said, well, you know, he's, he's no longer involved in that. And I think the two of you might get on. So, so I, I called Charles uh, rather out the blue and, and we met for a cup of coffee. Uh, and, and I have to say over that first cup of coffee, the conversation changed uh, from gin to tonic. Right. Uh, because as Charles said, look, I, I, I'm, I'm not about to start another gin to compete with my baby of Plymouth. Uh, but it was apparent that, you know, whilst he was running Plymouth Gin, he'd also, also thought about uh, the tonic market and the opportunity. Yeah. I'd also been looking at it through my research. Uh, with the East India Company. And it was an extraordinary sort of meeting of minds. You know, it was apparent that we'd both really come to the same thought and conclusion. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was the fact that we had seen how this spirits category was starting to premiumize. Uh, and not just here in the UK, but in the US and you know, many other markets around the world. 
And, you know, the spirit companies were starting to focus more and more of their time on promoting and marketing their premium portfolio. Uh, consumers are becoming ever more interested in quality and provenance and authenticity and distilling techniques. And at the same time, you know, the sort of the world of the bartender or the mixologist, mm. as they became known, you know, was starting to open up and great bars were starting to open up. Uh, and, you know, the cocktail uh, was starting to be talked about yeah. and revered uh, in, a, in a way that it hadn't for years. And also um, there was, you know, craft distillers were starting sure. to appear in different countries. So there was all this noise and interest around the world of spirits, whereas in stark contrast, yeah. you know, the very, very thing that they are in the main mixed with, you know, the mixer had been forgotten. Um, it, you know, had been the preserve of, you know, one or two big brands. And, you know, frankly, the category had become rather overlooked. Yeah. And, and they had really been concentrating more on sort of manufacturing efficiency. And, and as we said at the beginning, you know, things like artificial sweeteners, you know, yeah. found their way in, not, not just in their diet products, but in, you know, all of these products. And so it struck us as extraordinary. That, that there were people prepared to pay and wanting to pay and drink good quality spirits, but they had no choice at that point really to drown it, yeah. you know, in products that were that you know weren't made with the same quality ingredients. So that was our thought, absolutely, uh, and that was the idea. <laughs> and and amazingly, actually, we did sort of you know come up with the thought very early on about which we use and quote endlessly yeah. to this day, which is scribbled all over these walls here, <laughs> is that, you know, when you actually stop and think that three quarters of that gin and tonic is tonic, you know, why would people not be as interested or care yeah. about the quality of that tonic as they do about the quality of spirit? So, so that was the idea. Of course. And it seems like such an obvious one, one which we all wish we thought of ourselves. But was there something stopping you was there any any part of you that thought, well, maybe there's a reason no one's gone for a super premium tonic before? Well, I have to say, um, there wasn't in our mind, no, but there was in lots of other people's okay. minds that we spoke to. <laughs> there were no shortage of people who thought, you know, this is uh, yeah. a ridiculous idea, uh, and and amazingly, you know, many of the so-called experts in the trade, absolutely, you know, were, were very vocal. Well, uh, what did they say? Subject. What was well, they just thought, you know, that you can't possibly take on uh, an institution, you know, yeah. like a like a Schweppes. You know, they've been around forever and they're owned by Coca-Cola and, you know, they're the Goliath. You know, okay. how, how could you think you could take them on? So it was logistical. And it wasn't, they didn't not like the concept. They just thought, even if you get it right, there's no way it'll work. Yeah, they thought the competition was yeah. too big. Exactly. Yeah. So how did you then go about making the first prototypes, I, was there a kind of mad laboratory stage when you were mixing well, things at home in the oh, kitchen? Yeah, well, there was, there was yeah. exactly that. Uh, and, you know, I still have a sort of a picture of myself with a sort of, you know, saucepan on my head and my trying to sort of pasteurize something you right. know, in our own sink in a very, very amateur way. Um, but I mean, the truth is, is that, you know, we went about it very differently uh, from the way the, the big soft drink companies or, or even, you know, certainly any mixer company has, has gone away their sort of product development 
because you know we we decided that we wanted to go and find the most authentic and the highest quality ingredients yeah. and not just go and research them and then ask a, a flavor house to send them to you we wanted to actually then go and find them and go meet the suppliers and wow. meet the producers because uh, you know we always believed you know that the quality of the ingredients that go into this product in the end you know was going to be our differentiator yeah. um, and so it, it was it was a great idea uh, but it just meant that product development took a lot longer of course. Um, and and you know there were kind of many trials and tribulations you know along the way as a result <laughs> um, but I, I am glad that we went to those efforts because I think it's stood us in incredibly good stead as a result absolutely so the main thing if my knowledge is right in tonic is the queen it's the that's the the kind of heart and soul of it but you can't just grow that in your backyard can you? you've got to go yeah. Well, sadly not. No. I mean, I, I, I wish we could. It would be easier, <laughs> but sadly, the conditions here don't suit it. But you're right. So quinine. So just to bore you with, with, a, with a bit of background is that, you know, quinine comes from the fever tree. Um, and, and quinine is the, as you say, the heart and soul of tonic water. It, it's why tonic water was invented. Uh, because quinine uh, at the time in the 1800s uh, was the only thing that could prevent people from catching malaria mm. or indeed cure them from malaria. Uh, and it was the British troops in India who had quinine as a medicine to give to their troops. But quinine, you know, gives that bitterness, you know, that distinctive, yeah. wonderful bitterness you get in tonic water comes from quinine. But when you're taking it in its raw form, it's very bitter. I can imagine, so, yeah. so the troops, understandably, used to mix their morning medicine with sugar, with water, with any of the local botanicals yeah. and fruits they had to hand. So that is how tonic water came about. Uh, but as the story goes, you know, the troops also always carried with them a ration of gin. <laughs> Uh, so they found that what really helped their medicine go down in the morning was adding a bit of gin right. to their morning tonic. <laughs> uh, and that is how gin and tonic was, was invented. But so when I was researching uh, quinine uh, in the British Library, uh, I found that the last remaining plantation of the highest quality quinine was unfortunately in, in just about the most remote and lawless part of the world, which mm. we've got a map up here, but you know, is in the uh, eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah. Um, and you know, just to put it in perspective, just just to get there, I had to fly from London to Nairobi, yeah. uh, from Nairobi to Kigali in Rwanda, and then persuade a local taxi driver to drive me the six, seven hours across <laughs> Rwanda. And that was just to get to the, the, the border of the Congo. Wow, um, just you on your own? It was, yeah. Did yeah. any family members or friends try and dissuade you from this? <laughs> Well, there, there was a bit of that because yeah. actually my, my wife was working at making television programs for the BBC and was well aware of sending crews around the world yeah. of, of all the hurdles they have to go through when they're going to sort of high risk areas. Um, and actually only the night before I left, 
was she looking it up and was it uh, you know on, on the map every bit of advice told you yeah. under no circumstance travel to this area but but uh, she wasn't trying to dissuade me uh, she was just pointing it out but by then it, it, you know the tickets were booked and it was too late so <laughs> so I did go and of course I was you know well aware of the the circumstances but I have to say nothing quite prepared me for for the trip because it was, you know, beautiful at that point, actually, in the journey. And actually, Rwanda, you know, is the most beautiful country. It's called, you know, the country of a thousand hills. And it is glorious driving yeah. through it. But the, 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 the Congo side of the border is very different. Uh, not in terms of beauty, it's certainly that, but in terms of lawlessness. And, and actually, you know, when I turned up at the border post, you know, there were hundreds of people milling around and you had no idea who was official or unofficial. They're all armed. Uh, and so as I sort of finally found my way through, I then found a local uh, taxi guy the other side and sort of, and it was only a couple of miles to the plantation. Uh, and, and we got going and we were stopped pretty quickly um, at, at our first roadblock. And, and that was, someone who thrown this plank of wood out in front of the car with six inch nails wow. in it. Uh, and which is a very effective way to get you stop, <laughs> I can tell you. Uh, but he was well armed as well. So he just sort of put his hand in through the window yeah. and, and the, obviously the taxi driver seemed to know the form and gave him a bit of money. Uh, and, and then the second roadblock, uh, the guy didn't even bother with yeah. going to the trouble with wood and nails. Uh, he just had a bit of string he held up in the road, but again, okay. he had a gun over the shoulder. Uh, and the third one is the one that definitely still remains with me because it, we were then into a bit of undergrowth, uh, uh, you know, with this sort of rather rough road. Uh, and this young guy, I have no idea his age, but but he was, he was young, uh, stumbled out and he had a rocket launcher. Wow. Uh, sort of over his shoulder and he looked a bit dazed um, and so again you know we, we gave him what I realised is the toll and, okay. and, and, you, and you sort of keep going but so it, you know it, it's tragic really it, you know to see an area which is really quite so uh, yeah. devastated uh, and quite so lawless uh, but the thing about the area is that it's unbelievably fertile um, and, you know, someone said to me, you can put a pencil in the ground there and it will grow. Um, and so, you know, these fever trees, you know, really prosper in that area. And the guys that run this plantation, I have never uh, left with so much respect for a group of people than the people that manage and run this yeah. know, very successful plantation. So that was an extraordinary trip. But... It was worth it because we, to this day, get all of our quinine, you know, wow. f from them. And we've built up a, you know, a fantastic relationship over the years. Amazing. I'm, I'm incredibly impressed that, that you battled on past the <laughs> rocket launcher. Were there any other moments that made you think, maybe you, I'm out of my depth? Or are you a person who doesn't really feel out of their depth? I get that impression. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. But I, I mean, there, there have been many um, ingredient hunting trips because that's still, you know, I'm very involved in doing that yeah. to this day um, that have been a lot easier. Okay, um, fine. But they're always interesting. And, you know, they always take you to some, you know, interesting remote uh, parts of the world. I mean, a recent one, I was off in the Yucatan province in Mexico. 
uh, where we're hunting down uh, limes. Nice. Um, and, and that's an extraordinary part of the world. Um, and, you know, it, it, and it's famous because it's the part of the world where the meteorite hit uh, and, and where the dinosaurs, as a result, were wiped out. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was the epicenter of it. And the result is the terrain is very different because, because of that extraordinary impact, all the water was forced underground. And, and so the rock is very, very close to the surface. Wow. And so the result of that is the fact that uh, despite the fact the climate's perfect for growing citrus, you know, the citrus there have to work incredibly hard to find their water source. Yeah. And, and the result being is that the fruit is so intense because, you know, uh, as a result. And so, you know, that is why we went there to go and, and find our limes. And honestly, you know, when you start tasting limes there, they're just different from oh, anything else you've tasted before. So, you know, I mean, it's fascinating. And, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. It's, that's, a, that's a very important part of this whole business. Of course. So let's go back a bit. You've got your first ever tonic. You've got the best quinine in the world um, and you've bottled it up and you finally got the right formulation. How did you then go about... I don't know, getting that into shops and actually getting into bars and getting people drinking it. Yeah, well, that was the big challenge. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, rather as we did with the way we went about developing these products, you know, we set about uh, doing that very differently from the way the, the, the soft drinks industry typically does it. You know, the, the usual thing is they come up with a new product and then they blast the message at you, you know, sure. through above the line advertising uh, and tell you why it's so wondrous. Uh, but we thought we'd approach it differently. One, because we didn't have any money uh, to blast a message to anyone. Uh, and secondly, you know, we purposely wanted to do it differently. We wanted to get, you know, the people who really knew what they were talking about, mm. the kind of opinion formers of the trade to recommend it and endorse it. Uh, and and so, you know, there was no secret to it in many ways. It was sort of shoe leather going around, you know, the top bars to go and talk to the bartenders hmm. uh, and, you know, get them to taste the product, get them to understand about ingredients in it uh, and get them to understand about, you know, how it could help elevate, you know, their gin and tonic and yeah. their drinks and their customers' experience as a result. And, and I have to say that was that was good. I mean, it was long and time consuming because it's one bar by one bar. But, you know, it was met with a receptive audience. Uh, yeah. You know, that is, you know, at the top end of the trade, that's their industry is to be finding the new things that are coming along. And it really resonated with them. I mean, and the amount of times we heard from people who said, this is unbelievable. You know, mm. I've been working, you know, tending this bar for the last 10 years. I can't tell you the amount of gin and tonics I've served. I've never stopped to think about tonic water. Wow. Uh, and so it was a bit of a revelation for them. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, it wasn't just the bars and the bartenders that we were in pursuit of. As you say, it was the, the retailers as well. Uh, and again, we sort of took the same approach there, uh, sort of targeting the ones where we knew that, you know, they were there talking to their customers. Mm. So really, you know, the wine shops here in the UK. Oh, yeah. um, and is it still just you at this point? Are you still out and about? Yeah, Charles and I, and I think we had one other salesperson. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, sort of bit by bit, we would sort of persuade people on a, on a sort of part-time basis would, to join us, but there were a handful of us. Fine, yeah. and you would turn up with a glass 
and some gin and some ice and some lemon yeah. and actually just make them a drink. Well, we really did. Uh, and, and actually, you know, on the subject of, of the retailers, uh, you know, sort of Oddbins, which yeah. was our sort of early target, because they were, I mean, it's sad that they're no longer here. They're fantastic. I used to know. work at Oddbins. Did so you? In my yeah. Gap, yeah. yeah, exactly. It was, it was the best job I ever had. They had a very distinctive smell, Oddbins. Do you remember that kind of woody? I do, with all their bin ends. The bin ends, yeah. Quite. You don't get that experience anymore. No, they were brilliant and they were yeah. fantastic training ground for, for the drinks industry. Absolutely. So, you know, these were really interested, infused people working yeah. in the Obvious stores who, who their customers would really go in and ask their opinion. Uh, and so that's why we, we sort of targeted them, despite the fact they barely sold a bottle of tonic water. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, amusingly, we decided that we would try and visit every one of their stores. And I think they had 180 wow. of them at the time. But I was cycling around everyone. Charles was on a motorbike, I think. And, um, and actually, it ended up that we got on the... Uh, the front of their internal magazine called Grapevine. Yeah. Because uh, they thought this was completely extraordinary. But uh, <laughs> they had these sort of two yeah. tonic water uh, salesmen, you know, who had been prepared to go to every one of their stores. They said not even their wine uh, suppliers would do that. Um, but that was simply because we were so keen, you know, to, to spread our message. Mm. And we thought this was the most, you know, uh, effective way. Absolutely. Um, were you coming up against many brick walls? We, I'm sure lots of the bartenders loved it, but did anyone in the retail sector say, this isn't going to work? Well, interestingly, we didn't really. As, as I said early on, there were sort of many doubters, but they tended to be, you know, kind of investor types or, 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 or you know, consultants, et cetera. Right. But, but, you know, we've got a real break at, at retail. A great bit of sort of good fortune with Waitrose um, mm. because they actually called us uh, which I realize now, you know, it's never happened since, I might <laughs> no. add. But it's a real bit of sort of serendipity in the fact that the Waitrose buyer, the mixer buyer, um, was, as she told me, the tale she was bored on a train going down to Wales and there was a discarded uh, Saturday Times on the, on the seat opposite and she picked it up. And we just had one little picture of our, our product in, in the paper. Uh, and, and she ripped it out because she said, I've been waiting for a product like this because she saw how the sort mm. of premium uh, spirit sales and gin sales were starting to grow and was well aware of you know, the lack of interest in the mixer category. Uh, and so she actually called us. Um, wow. I mean, admittedly, uh, the first time she called us, the number at the bottom of that piece was wrong, uh, which we spotted. <laughs> and then we managed to divert it. And literally, just as we diverted the number, the phone rang. And it was the waitress bar. She said, thank God someone answered because I wasn't going to call again. This no, is the third oh time. Oh, my word. But so actually, she was sort of very, you know, perceptive. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we launched in a, in a sort of small amount of waitress stores. And it was a pretty painful time because it, in those days, Waitrose had this sort of rule that you couldn't actually market the product for the first six weeks. It yeah. had to stand on its own merits. Uh, and so, you know, there it was in the store, but it started to rotate. Uh, and she had launched, you know, hundreds, thousands of products and sort of had a good idea of, you know, what was a, a good sign or not. And she was sort of very encouraging about it. So, so actually that, that sort of started our retail journey. Amazing. And then there was a moment with Ferran Adria, 
from yes. Malbuli, of course. Yes. Another big early fan. And another moment of luck, I suppose, as well. No, it was. It definitely was. And, you know, the thing I have definitely learned, you know, in businesses is you need a bit of good fortune right, yeah. along the way. Uh, and, and this was certainly that. You know, this was sort of, for us, really, on a, on a bigger scale. Uh, and that, that was a guy called Farhan Hadrit. Uh, and, you know, at the time, he, he was really Spain's most sort of, you know, famous, mm. certainly gastronomic uh, son. Uh, he had this restaurant called El Bulli, uh, which had won best restaurants in the year for five years running. And he called us up. Uh, he had been given a bottle of our fever tree. Uh, someone had bought it, a sort of famous artistic friend of his, had bought it from the shelves of Waitrose and liked it so much and thought to himself, I know Farhan loves uh, his gin and tonic. So yeah. he sent him a bottle of fever tree. Uh, and, you know, the first we knew of it was the fact that we got a call from uh, Farhan Sommelier, who was also called Farhan, which is rather confusing, uh, uh, saying, uh, uh, Mr. Adria has tried your product and he would like, uh, like to meet you. Uh, and so Charles and I, you know, jumped at the chance to, to go yeah, out course. to El Bulli because at the time it was impossible to get a reservation at the restaurant. <laughs> oh, and he was going to feed you as well? Well, this is what oh, it, wow. it turned out to be. So he said, come least. out to El Bulli. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so we did. And the reason, actually, he wanted us to come out to El Bulli uh, was that uh, not only, as he said, do I think it makes for the very best gin yeah. and tonic, uh, fever tree, but he said it's so good. I've made it into a dish uh, in my restaurant. So, oh wow! His world famous sort of tasting menu, yeah. sort of course fifteen, was a super uh, de fever tree tonic. So this sort of granita, <laughs> um, and so there we had this sort of most glorious time in this wondrous restaurant, eating our tonic water yeah. uh, that he prepared. But but why it has such an effect really is that this whole. Uh, extraordinary gin and tonic sort of renaissance uh, that, that has gone on and still very much going on. Really, I think everyone now says had its birth yeah. really there at, at, in Spain with Ferran and his yeah. chef friends. They discovered Fever Tree. Uh, they were discovering these other premium gins that were coming to the market. They were serving them in these big balloon glasses mm. with lots of ice, these copper glasses. And they really sort of, you know, celebrated this drink. Uh, and because they were so iconic uh, in this sort of gastronomic world, you know, other people followed. And, and you know, it's uh, as a result, you know, this, this sort of trend is just growing and growing around the world. Absolutely. So you are now the, am I right in saying that you're the, the number one tonic brand in the UK? We are in the UK by value, I yeah. have to say, uh, not by volume, but you know that's been you know incredibly exciting. Of and course. you know, and I think the really exciting thing about that is is we we talked about at the beginning the kind of you know the naysayers, uh, but you know we always just had this belief that you know quality has got broad mm. appeal, um, and you know that really you know has proved to be the case. You know, hence getting to this point now of, of being sort of bigger than. Uh, than Schweppes by value, and 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 actually, I often you know explain it to to anyone who cares to listen. You know, in terms of the variety of our customer base, by saying that, look, you know, now we find ourselves uh, actually you know served in Buckingham Palace. So you know, sort of you know, in theory, uh, drunk by the Queen, but also uh, in the Queen Vic 
in EastEnders. Yeah. You know, they're, they're seen serving fever tree you oh, know, from really? time to time. Yes. Yeah, so is it prop fever tree or is it but, real stuff? Well, I, I we don't, don't know where know. they're buying it from, but we, we see it. So, wow, amazing. So from there to there. And also, I, I don't know if you ever remember the um, Hatton Garden Diamond heist. Of course. Uh, you know, sort of you know, eight, nine years ago. Uh, that went on with his old boys, you yeah, know, who yeah. got rumbled at the last minute. But uh, there was the picture that did the rounds of them on CCTV uh, when they were, you know, finalizing their plot. There they were in an East End pub, and the table was just awash with fever tree gin and tonics. <laughs> you know. So, as I say, from the Queen to even the, you know, yeah. the, the, the local crook, you wow. know, has decided it's worth paying a bit more for. <laughs> Absolutely. So, now that you're, you're top dog in a way, I guess you've stopped being the underdog and now you've got to look behind you. Surely there have been a, a kind of a wave of imitators in the high-end tonic and mixers world. And does it worry you at all? <laughs> there, there have. There, I mean, you know, sort of lots of people say, oh, well, you've sort of had this, you know, all to yourselves. Well, that, that really isn't the case. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have had, I think at the last count in, in the UK, we've had over 80 copycats, wow. uh, as I refer to them as, uh, you know, have come into the, this category. And, you know, these are these are the big guys. These are the big uh, soft drink companies of all who have tried to launch sort of premium versions. You know, these are the sort of mid-sized ones and these are lots of, you know, small uh, independents as well. But, but, you know, I'm pleased to say that, you know, despite all of that, uh, that we, you know, remain well ahead of them mm. um, in terms of size, but also in terms of product range and, yeah. and, and sort of distribution. So, of course, you know, uh, some people say imitation is flattery. I never see it that way. <laughs> uh, um, but so, of course, you're always, you know, well aware of them uh, and wary of them as well. But, you know, we're, we're in an exciting position yeah. because, you know, the exciting thing for us is, is that it really is no sort of exaggeration to say that I think we're just getting started to some extent, you know, uh, around when I look at our business around yeah. the world. Because th this trend that we talked about at the beginning of, of premium spirits is just growing and growing. Of course. Uh, you know, people, you know, when you look at it sort of internationally, really, you know, wine is starting to stagnate in terms of people's interest. Beer is actually, in terms of volume, in quite notable decline wow. now in most markets. Um, Yet spirits are what is really starting to capture people's imagination, uh, and particularly amongst the younger consumers. But you know what is also you know fortunate is the fact that it's the way people want to drink their spirits. Is that actually they don't want to drink them neat or over ice to anything mm. like the same degree that they once did. You know, I think health and wellness and lifestyles, you know, have changed people's perception of that. Uh, they want to drink them long and they want to sort of drink them simply and long. Mm. Uh, so this is where, you know, we find ourselves, you know, in this sort of wonderful position where we're the sort of perfect partner, uh, you know, for these spirit trends as, as they develop. Yeah. And you must have seen all sorts of trends come over the years. Things come and go. I mean, I mean, we talk about the 90s, of course. Alco pops was the main, main way people consume their alcohol. Yes, exactly. I mean, as a nine-year-old, I'm sure that's what you well, I mean, there, there was one called Hooch, which always was yes. advertised and looked particularly delicious. 
I'm not sure it still exists. Maybe we can get some. It's I, probably not real Sicilian lemons. I like don't yours. think it is. I think you're right. It, yeah. was, it was alcoholic lemonade, effectively. Yeah, it was. Uh, and that is, in truth, as I understand it, uh, why they came and went, is, right. is that they were sort of, you know, being drunk by too many underage people. Of course. Uh, and so, you know, reputation went with it as a right. result. But if you were a betting man, what would be the next wave? Is it really these kind of low and no alcoholic stuff? Or is it something left field we've not even thought of, do you think? Well, I, look, I mean, I, I'm talking up my own book here. I'm yeah. very conscious of that. But uh, I really just do see uh, these mixed spirits uh, as, yeah. as, you know, growing and growing. I mean, you were mentioning before we, we started talk, you know, started this recording about you just being in Italy mm. and you'd seen, you know, the spritz. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a mixed spirit. Look at the success that, that there's been with that. Look at, obviously, we've been talking a lot about gin and tonics, but, you know, our business in the U.S., uh, it's our ginger-based products uh, that actually are growing so strongly for us there alongside yeah. our tonics. But that's a mule drink, you know, Moscow mule. So these are just simple, you know, vodka and ginger beer. Uh, and in Asia... Uh, the thing that has been growing very quickly is the highball, which is mixed yeah. whiskey. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, all of these uh, drinks are growing quickly and, and spreading. And, and the exciting thing is, is that previously, you know, spirits had had a difficult time in, in making the transfer from home, yeah. uh, from, from the bar to home. Yeah. But actually, I think this is where just being able to mix them simply has really helped. And, and we saw this in lockdown. Yeah. It is that, you know, our business uh, at home grew, you know, very strongly because actually people are mixing their drinks quite simply, yeah. but more frequently yeah. uh, than ever before. Exactly. Um, as I kept saying, I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, this is the best form of home entertainment. Forget home baking. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> Absolutely. And what about the, the pre-mix category then? I keep getting press releases in my inbox about hard seltzers. Yes. What do we think about hard seltzers? Is this a fad? Is this a? Do you believe there's any any benefit to them? Do you like? Yeah, them? I mean, look, I, 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 it's too early to say. I think you know whether it's a fad, but they're certainly uh, growing very fast in the US. Yeah. But as far as I'm concerned, it's really uh, attracting a beer consumer. Yeah. The hard seltzer. It's really sort of more beer replacement than mm. it is in in our in our world. I mean, they're they're served in cans. They're pre-mixed, as you say. They sit yeah. there in the in the cooler yeah. uh, in the U.S. and drunk at you know their tailgate parties, as they describe yeah. them, or sporting <laughs> occasions. So it's really more you know the beer world. I think. Uh, They've got their eye more closely Fine. on them. And what about, I mean, I wonder as we look around at all these different things you've made, have you ever had any flops, any flavors that didn't well, work? We, you know, of, of, we've had things that, you know, haven't grown necessarily yeah. as quickly as, as we would have, have liked to start. But, but that said, um, there haven't been any that we've had to discontinue. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the one thing I have you know, definitely seen is it takes time, you know, with, with drinks for people to discover them, adopt them. Uh, and this is what we're starting to see with our ginger range, which I've always been incredibly excited about because, 
our ginger products, I think, are just second to none. I mean, you're drinking a ginger yeah. beer at the moment. You know, I mean, they are, in the case of that ginger beer, we make it with three different types of ginger, these fantastic gingers from, you know, different corners of the world. Uh, and it's, it's packed, you know, with real mm. ginger. And, and, you know, this whole move of the dark spirit category to pushing and promoting Martin cells as a mixed drink is yeah. starting to gather momentum. And they, they are proposing it to be mixed with ginger in the main. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm pretty excited about that Absolutely. because, you know, when you put it in perspective, so when I say about the fact we've got all this opportunity ahead, I mean, our business to date has largely uh, been based on tonic water and, and its association with gin and tonic. But that only, gin only accounts for 6% of premium spirit sales around the world. If you take dark spirits such as whiskey, you know, that accounts for 10 times that, oh, wow. for sort of 60%. And, and it is these whiskey producers who are also waking up to this opportunity of marketing their product as a delicious, long, mixed yeah, drink. And people are really starting to, to get a taste for it. I certainly know I am. Yeah. Yeah. I can't <laughs> stop drinking it. But I mean, I really do think that is incredibly exciting. Yeah. You know, these, when you think of these wonderful bourbons, you know, that are on the market and these premium bourbons and the Irish whiskies and the Scotch mm. whiskies, of course. But, you know, this whole sort of craft revolution, as we've seen in gin, is happening there as well in whiskey. I mean, the, the last thing I read that there are over a thousand new distilleries it, that have opened in the US wow. in the last 10 years. And the large predominance of those is in the, is in the bourbon category. And, and these are the distillers who are coming out and promoting their product mix right from the start. So wow. I think this is just going to grow and grow and grow that, that category. Amazing. Well, keep an eye on it. So I wonder. Keep drinking it. Yeah, keep drinking it. Yeah, for sure. When you look back now at Tim when he was in his late twenties and setting out, what would be your advice to him? What would you say? Uh, my advice to him. Well, do you know, I, I have to. I would start by saying is that uh, I'm always loath to give advice. It, okay. Partly I realise because. I sort of rather loathe people who give advice. <laughs> and I suddenly realized, probably this is a reflection on my schooling, I was very bad at taking advice. Um, so I'm always, you know, think it's a difficult thing. Yeah. But, but what, what I would say as I look back on it, it is, is that, you know, when you're starting out, um, you know, in my case, uh, you know, I was incredibly fortunate uh, that I had the most brilliant business partner. So, you know, that has been, you know, fantastic. And I think, you know, doing it together, it, it makes it uh, more enjoyable uh, and, you know, and less stressful. I mean, the old problem shared is a problem halved. I, I really yeah. believe in, you know, having someone to talk to uh, throughout the process. Uh, was absolutely for me essential, and so I think you know a business partner. I would say is is something that's always worth considering. Yeah. Uh, um, but then you know when people say, "God, you know what? What would you say?" And all I would say because we, I suddenly find myself being approached by lots of people with their ideas, and and what we I think did well was we spent a lot of time researching okay. the opportunity, uh, and I think that is pretty essential. Uh, but then all I would say is that you've just got to go for it. 
Uh, and don't, you know, we've spent quite a bit of time talking about naysayers. Don't <laughs> listen to the naysayers because there'll always be plenty of them. Okay. Uh, but don't listen to them and just, you know, go for it and try and enjoy it as much as you can. Good advice, I think, for anything. Before we get onto our final quickfire things, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what the Tim Morello signature GMT mix is. How do you make yours? Well, um, so. As as we were taught by our, our Spanish chef and yeah. friends, is I really believe in putting it in as big a glass as you can find. <laughs> I mean, I'm holding one in front of me, which is the sort of traditional yeah. copper glass, a yeah, big balloon glass, but you know, a big wine glass will do for the simple reason is that you want to be able to get your nose into it. Mm. You know, it's like red wine. You know, there's so many different flavors going on. You mm. know, think of all the botanicals that got into the gin. Think of all these wonderful botanicals that got into the tonic water. You want to be able to appreciate that so that i think is essential and then put as much ice as you can in as possible because the whole point is that you know ice when you make the drink really cold it holds on to carbonation so warm tonic water means that you lose the carbonation and carbonation is a flavor carrier so put as much ice as you can wow, in. okay yeah um and and you know chill your tonic water uh, and then, of course, choose a good quality gin. And then the garnish, the age-old debate yeah. about, you know, how do you garnish? Well, I think, you know, Charles, uh, who, of course, you know, was a gin uh, expert with his Plymouth gin, you know, before Tony Water always said, and I totally agree with him, is that, you know, the last thing you want to do is get a big garnish and squeeze yeah. uh, all the fruit and juice into it. Because think of all the time and trouble that's gone into, you know, the different recipes uh, for the gin and for the tonic. So don't go and drown those, but just take the zest of a bit of fruit and twist it over the top. So you actually get the oils that come Fine. off, which give you that sort of lovely flavor, but don't actually change, you know, the flavor of the drink. And so is it, that's the way I would drink is it. Is it lemon, is it orange, is it lime, or, or does it well, change? it changes a bit, but I, I you know, I, I suppose you, know, you can't go far wrong with a, a lemon or a lime zest. Absolutely. Okay, well, we'll have some of those after this. But no. before we do, these are the quick fire ones we ask okay. everyone. So you have to be as honest as possible. I'm sure you will be. What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't making mixers? Um, well, that's a good question. I'm not really sure. I've uh, <laughs> I've given that too much thought for a long time. But but look, I mean, I suppose uh, most people would probably tell me I'm pretty unemployable by now. <laughs> um, so so I would have to be doing something entrepreneurial. Fine. Uh, and I think I'd have to be doing something in the in the world of food and drink. I think yeah. it's too interesting and exciting. Uh, and too dynamic an industry. So something around there. Okay. What's, What's your, your worst habit? Well, uh, it depends <laughs> who you ask. And, and I've got many of them. But my family would definitely say uh, hyperactivity. Okay. Is that I was certified it as a child. As oh, my wow. mum constantly reminds me. And she always said, I, I've, I'm, one, I'm in the middle of three brothers and my younger brother is 10 years younger than me. She said it took her 10 years to get over <laughs> having me before she could face another one. So, <laughs> so that, that still so sadly you know, exists. Fine, okay. What's the most impressive thing you can cook? Well, Joe, I'm glad you asked. My, my signature dish yes. is a chili coconut chicken curry. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Amazing. that and a great gin and tonic. I just don't think you could want for anything more. Incredible. Well, I look forward to having it. What are you most proud of so far in the Fever Tree journey? 
Well, in the Fever Tree journey, uh, I mean, it's, it's got to be the Fever Tree team. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, there are sort of 250 of us now, sort of directly employed by Fever Tree, and then many, many more who we work incredibly closely with, who, who produce you know, mm. the product for us and bottle it for us. And, and we really do have the most you know, fantastic group. So I'm proud of the fact that I've been part of attracting and, and retaining you know, a brilliant and diverse group. And I really do feel, so we've, we've got you know, the best in the industry. Yeah. So, so that I think is probably what I'd be proud of. Sam. Absolutely. And on the other side, what's been your biggest failure or regret, do you think? Biggest failure or regret? Um, well, <laughs> I mean, you know, fortunately there haven't been too many along the way yeah. uh, with Fever Tree. But what I am incredibly regretful for on a daily basis is my inability to speak another language. Right. Um, and I say that because we are a very international business. We're in about 74 countries now and I spend a lot of time traveling. And I always feel so inadequate, yeah. you know, when I'm sitting somewhere else and someone has to speak in English so we can communicate. I uh, yeah. And I always think it's pathetic, actually, that, yeah. you know, I can't, you know, communicate in another language. So, so I think, it, you know, definitely that. If you could learn one new skill, I mean, this is probably played right into your hands. What would it be? Would it be the language? It would. But I mean, yeah. I'm hopeless at them. Uh, so, you know, I would. I would struggle away. But that's what I'd love to be able to do. What was the last piece of advice you gave someone? Well, I think as I, I said before, yeah, you know, loads to give it. <laughs> what yeah. phrase would you like to banish from the earth? Well, look, I, it, I'm glad you asked that because the one thing I really can't bear is management speak. Yeah. Uh, I just think it clouds and gets in the way of everything. And, and, and there are a couple of recent uh, phrases that just get used, you know, mm. on loop and they are double down and double pivot. Down. Okay. Yeah. So I, so we must pivot three or four times a day, you know, when I listen to people on Zoom calls and we're doubling down on everything as far wow. as I can see. So, so those two things I happily never hear again. Okay. Well, do people say that in this office? Do you tell them? I tell them every time, but you know, keep sleep, slipping yeah. in. I guess pivot just means slightly change your yeah. plan. It changed direction. Sounds good though, doesn't it? it, it that's the thing. Sounds yeah. sporty. Yeah. <laughs> if you could stay one age forever, what would you be? Oh, I, I, without hesitation, it would be it would be now. I mean, I'm in mid forties. Um, my wife seemingly is still prepared to you know to see me and hang around, and, and I've got four little yeah. boys, uh, and they're young enough to still want to do stuff with okay. me. I know that will change very quickly. I'm well aware of that. Um, and then also, you know, my parents and parents-in-law are yeah. very healthy and active. We see lots of them. So actually, I feel it's chaos. You're in the middle. Uh, the it's, it's, a, it's a busy, chaotic time, but it's, yeah. it's a fun age. It's very encouraging. I ask that question, and almost everyone says the age they are now. No one says, oh, I wish I was 21 again. Really? Because that's my, yes. that's my fear, that it's just downhill from here. But maybe yeah. I'm a bit wrong to Yeah, from here, and you're much younger than I am. Well, exactly. So, yeah. You're saying that by looking at me. No, but, no, yeah. no, no, no. I, mean, <laughs> I said that from my research. We could be brothers, barely years apart. Um, what have you done recently for the first time? Um, well, it's funny you should say that. On the, on the subject of age, Yeah, I, I honestly did say... Uh, just at the weekend, how young that policeman was looking. 
Um, and so, you know, you suddenly realize there are things creeping in about, you know, yeah. how old you're getting. In the same way, I, you know, wore glasses for the first time oh, the wow. other day. So, yeah, so on the subject of downhill from here, you know, exactly. that, that's, that's how it's starting to feel. The depressing ones are when you look at a, an England sporting team like the rugby team and you realize that you would be considered a veteran in that <laughs> yes, side. Exactly. And I've still got hope that maybe I'll break into the squad. <laughs> Um, there's a few injuries. Anyway, what is your most treasured physical possession? And you can't, I'm afraid, say a dog or a person or anything like that. It's got to be something physical. Oh, well, that, um, it's a bike. Oh, wow. A bicycle, that is. Uh, my current one, I'd say. Uh, and I'd say current. Uh, not because it's very special. It really isn't. It's a no. very ordinary bicycle. But I've been through so many of them. You know, that is living oh, in okay. London where they get stolen the whole time. But it is so brilliant. You know, my cycle around, you know, town, you know, always. Um, and, and also... I took a long time to pass my driving test. I yeah. failed many times. So my bicycle is my only okay. you know, form of you know, getting around and escape. So I love my bicycle. Absolutely. How old yeah. were you when you passed your driving test? Well, I think I was sort of, sort of mid-20s. Okay. You know, it's it's, it's you, pain, painful to even remember. Well, I'm a 30-year-old and I've never... Passed. I failed my test when I was 17. And then I thought maybe that's an institution that I shouldn't be a part of. And you've never, you've never gone back. Well, I grew up. Me and I grew up in Oxford, where everyone cycled. Um, right. And then I went to Durham, where there yeah. was no point, And then I moved to London. So yeah. I never really had an opportunity. Anyway, yeah. I thought this is more about me. But I, I, I agree with you that bikes are <laughs> bikes think. are the ultimate freedom. Yeah, they are. Yeah, exactly. It feels. Yeah. And I still remember my first bike. Getting my first bike. It remains the best present I ever got. Yeah. Exactly. What book has influenced you the most? Well, influenced me. I don't. I don't know about influence, um, but I think the book that I've enjoyed the most it is probably, you know, very cliched. But you know, when I was young, I read *To Kill a Mockingbird* and I yeah. loved it. And I still remember reading it, and I still remember the kind of thrill of it, and I still remember the hero that is Atticus Finch. So yeah. I think that's probably the book that that's great. I, I love the most. We get a lot of business books and things, so it's refreshing to hear a real literary novel. <laughs> what is your personal motto? Well, I, I don't have a personal motto, actually. <laughs> uh, um, but but I, there, was a, there was a motto at school, actually, that yeah. f- strangely I find myself you know thinking about from time to time. But it was... Fortune favors the brave. Yeah. I, I don't think it's it's a very uncommon motto, but I think there's something in it. Uh, so I suppose as mottos go, that's that's yeah. the, the only one I ever think about. And what about the Phoebe Tree motto? Is it is it the the motto we see adorned on the walls? It, it mixed with the best. Mixed with the best. Yeah. You know, it's uh, inscribed on everyone's you know absolutely clothes and everything else. And finally, what's your idea of happiness? Well, I, um, look, I think that's very straightforward, actually. That's, you know, you've got to have, I, I have to have all my family around, yeah. you know, of all ages. And uh, and then there'd have to be a sporting event. Okay. Uh, a sporting activity probably is a reflection of being slightly and unappealingly competitive. So that would have to take place. Uh, and then there just have to be many good drinks. Okay. You know, ideally before and after that sporting event. Absolutely. So, yeah. I would have thought that a mixture of that. Absolutely. Well, that sounds brilliant. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, Joe, thank you very much. And and hopefully we can now get to the bar and have a proper drink. (laughs) Absolutely. Great.